The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic The Dark Tower. This podcast is dedicated to discussion and analysis of The Dark Tower, a seven-book series written by the prolific American story-slinger Stephen King. Say thank you, Sai. They caught him. They formed a protective ring around him, and the gunslinger felt hot with guilt and self-loathing. What had he done to deserve such enthusiastic protectors? What, besides tear them out of their known and ordinary lives as ruthlessly as a man might tear weeds out of his garden? He tried to tell them he was alright, that they could stand back, he was fine. But no words would come out. That terrible, wavery sound had transported him back to the Box Canyon, west of Hambry, all those years ago. To Pape, Reynolds, old limping Jonas. Yet most of all, it was the woman from the hill he hated and from black depths of feeling only a very young man can reach. Ah, but how could he have done aught else but hate them? His heart had been broken. And now, all these years later, it seemed to him that the most horrible fact of human existence was that broken hearts mended. All right, long days, pleasant nights. Welcome back, Wheel of Ka, presented by the Midnight Myth. Um, very, very, very excited. We are knee deep in Wizard and Glass. We are very, very, very excited to talk about it. I, uh, Steve, how you feeling, man? Oh, well, I'm, I'm tired today. I had a seven hour wedding, worked a seven hour wedding outdoors in the heat is 95 degrees today. And then there was a torrential downpour, but uh, yeah. So I work for my wife, you know, she's a professional photographer. So we had worked a wedding today. But here I am, excited, more excited than I have been yet, because this is my favorite book. So even though I'm tired, I feel very privileged to be here, and I'm, I'm ready to go. Fuck yeah. Yeah, how are you doing? I feel like I'm under the reaping moon. Oh, yeah. And I uh, can see old mother. Let's throw those right over there. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I am very excited to talk about this. So yeah. you mentioned that this is your favorite book. Yep. Um, the first time around, it was your favorite. It does. So I'll, I'll preface this. Let's start at the beginning sure. here. We only have read half of it. Now, the idea was we wanted to do a book a month, and then the books became almost a 1,000 pages apiece. And this is the biggest one. And we are both really busy people yeah. with careers, family, et cetera, et cetera. So just like we did with the last one, we've read pretty much 50%. We've mm -hmm. read up right until part three in mm -hmm. the book. So we've read part one and part two. We're at the, the junction point where... Roland and Jonas are in the middle of their game of castles and Roland and Susan are deep in their romance and they are actually having sex. So we're at this junction point halfway through wizard and glass. Does it like we've, I think we've started everyone the same way. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about this book at this point compared to when you first read it? I mean, I, I pretty much feel the same. I think it's the best book. I think it's the best written. I think it's Stephen King at, you know, we've said this, it's funny, almost every book we've said, like, this is Stephen King at his best. But I really do think, again, up <laughs> to this point, yep, that absolutely. this is him just, you know, full bore, writing one word at a time. You know, you had mentioned that earlier, and I think he's on fire. And I think this is the first time where, you know, we've spent three entire books knowing Roland, 
and being attracted to Roland and connecting with Roland, but not knowing much about him, about his background, about his history, about where he comes from, who he is as a person. I mean, we see this noble knight, you know, descendant from Arthur of Eld. You know, we, 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 we come to know very important pieces of his background. We don't really know emotionally where he's at. So now we get this entire story about him as he recants it to his new quartet. And uh, no, I love it. I, it's my favorite one. It still is. It gives me chills. I cannot believe, by the way, I cannot believe that we read half of this fucking book. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, looked at, I really did. I looked at it. I was like, we're going to read like a third of it. This will probably be three episodes. Yeah. And then you're like, well, let's stop at part three. I was like, yeah, okay, cool, 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 cool. Where's part three? It's right in the middle right of the book. Right in the freaking middle. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, so how do you feel about it this time around? I feel tremendous about it. My first time when I read Wizard in Glass and I was making my way through the Dark Tower, it was my favorite installment when I was done with it. I still love it. I can't say it's my favorite installment still. Right now, I kind of want to reserve that for the end. Sure. I Because I, I'm not sure where I'm going to fall. But when I committed to sitting down and seriously reading this, mm-hmm. the pages turned faster, more more pleasantly, mm-hmm. more easily than they had in any other book. And I've loved all the other books. Mm-hmm. So this book to me has a little special something. I think part of that special something is exactly what you said. We've seen this character Roland. We've heard his story We've heard bits and pieces of his story, rather. We've heard little nuances of Fever Dream, where he's mentioned in Susan. He's mentioned his friends Cuthbert and Alain. We, ta- we know a little bit about Court, but we're really thirsty for what the world was that he came from, how he came to be, what this universe looked like before it moved on. And now we get that. And like the fantasy nerd in me, (laughs) seeing a Western and fantasy world so perfectly melded Mm. in this novel really hits home. And I I genuinely think the first half of this book is a fucking home run. Yeah, it's excellent. I genuinely believe that. It's excellent. So another big question before mm-hmm. we get too into the nitty gritty. We've asked this every time. Mm. I think we should ask this again. Mm-hmm. What is the tower? Does the tower change? How does the tower matter in this book? Well, it certainly changes because of all of them, this is the one where the concept and the physical place of the dark tower is pretty much non-existent. It's not talked about. So to me at this point, because it's a 16, 15, 16 year old Roland. So it's pretty early. And also we don't know when this is in Roland's timeline. So this could be thousands of years ago. Cause time doesn't work the same. Right. Anymore. So, so we, we don't really know. So to me, the tower is sort of a legend at this point. It's not really, it doesn't play. It's not Roland's reason for existing. That happens you know, to, when he, he's becoming a gunslinger and then he meets Susan. And when he meets Susan, Susan is his tower. Right. Almost. The ta- I totally agree with you. The tower is this thing off in the distance. I think there's like one or two throwaway lines about the tower where Roland is reflecting in the story. It's like, 
maybe this is the tower. Maybe the tower was calling him. There's a few lines to it, but it's not the main driving force of our hero. Our hero is just trying to sustain and do his job in the Magus, in the city of Hambury, or no, the county of Magus, the city of Hambury, or no, the county of Hambury, the city of Magus. I just fucking read this. I should know this. No, it's interesting, but I don't remember either. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. They're in Hambry. They're in Hambry. Let's just say that. We're professionals. You know? (laughs) We know our stuff. But anyway, (laughs) I digress. There are a few references to the elemental guardians Mm. in Mm -hmm. the statues that they see around the town. They sell. The bear, the turtle. They're selling. There are merchants who are selling little ornaments or basically keepsakes or... I mean, they're religious totems, really, right. at the end of the day. Yep. So I think that, like, th- that's the looms. reference. It looms. Right, right. Everyone knows about the tower. They know about the guardians. They know about the beams. These are the stories that they've grown up on. Mm-hmm. But the pressing concern in this is not the tower. And it's also because the world right now hasn't moved on. It's beginning to, but it, it hasn't moved on yet. So they're still very present and very prevalent in, in the lives of these people. Right. So let's talk a little bit too about Ka, because I feel that Ka, if there is a elemental force driving this narrative, Ka would be that force. Mm -hmm. I think Ka takes on a much more active meaning in this, in particular in the romance between Mm -hmm. Roland and Susan. Mm -hmm. Susan often reflects words from her father, I have the quote right here. If it's Ka, it'll come like a wind, and your plans will stand before it no more than a barn before a cyclone. Mm -hmm. Meaning that Ka will come like a fucking storm, and you have no choice, and you will be taken away by it. No control. It's the first time we hear Ka discussed as a storm, as a cyclone, as a wind. Something that's active. Something that is a force in the world that's mm-hmm. constantly driving. It's more elemental. And Susan is trying to fight that force. And eventually she realizes, this is Ka. I'm in love. I have to run with right, this. Right. I can no longer fight it as much as I could fight myself. Yeah. So I feel like Ka's very present in this one. Oh, absolutely. It gets talked about a lot. I mean, I, I also think it's because these young, I mean, they're, they're children, they're teenagers, are learning what Ka is and, and what it means to be run by Ka and what it, and the fact, you know, I think it's interesting the fact that they do talk about it relatively actively. Whereas Roland in the previous three books, it's like pulling teeth to get him to talk about Ka. Right. And then once he shares that with Eddie and they're, you know, they could be explaining something that's happening and, and, and Eddie respond with Ka, you know, and Roland to get that little smirk. Right. You know? Yep. Absolutely. All right. Let's, uh, let's dive into the specifics. Here. Oh, let's really, I have been waiting for this. For let's such really, a long really time. talk about it. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's start with the beginning. It, mm-hmm. the book starts exactly where the last one ends. Yeah. Our content, we have Roland, Susanna, Eddie, Jake, and, um, Oi. Oi. Mm-hmm. on the psychotic suicidal train in the middle of the riddle game. And, Eddie finally figures out the main riddle. Don't ask me silly questions. I won't play silly games. Force Blaine to play silly games, and he will literally blow all of his circuitry, and that saves them all, and they defeat the train. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that from Wasteland's 
to Wizard and Glass. I think that's the only book, if I recall, that has a major cliffhanger of an ending like that. I mean, yeah, so far. And, yeah. and, and from the other ones, yeah, this is the only one that transitions into another book. And I think it was brilliant that it was Eddie who figured out that oh. riddle because oh. everyone else is too goddamn serious and too into riddles. I think it's when Eddie becomes a gunslinger. Oh, interesting. Expand See, on Susan- that. Well, Susanna became a gunslinger early on. Like, it was pretty much assumed that she was, I mean, she was strong, tough, powerful. It just, it made sense with her. Whereas up until the the last book, I mean, Eddie still figuring his way out. I mean, Roland calls him a gunslinger, and it's true. He's trained. But I think this is the moment where he, it crosses the threshold. And he is the hero. I love that. Yeah, and I think he finally gets to be the one where he takes, first of all, he takes himself seriously by telling jokes to Blaine. Right. I mean, that's what he's good at. He's witty. He's quick. He's sharp. It's his brain. I mean, he gets talked about being like Cuthbert all the time. What does Cuthbert do in this book? He tells jokes. He tells fucking jokes all of the time until there's a moment where he realizes that's inappropriate and that's not going to get us ahead. I love that. And so, Eddie, this is their direct connection. This is why, I mean, this is why I start to see the parallels in the story between Eddie and Cuthbert, Susanna and Elaine, you know, because this is the first time they actually have to interact as gunslingers. You know, an interesting point I want to build onto that. When Eddie finally overcomes Blaine, the memory that he goes to in his head is one of him and his brother. And his brother ceases to be a ghost at this point, haunting him. Mm -hmm. He remembers his brother and that his brother believed in him, at least in this one moment. The only time. And that one moment where Eddie could talk his way out of anything, and that's who you want in a fight. You want Eddie. Right. And the fact that his brother chose him meant so much to him that he's just like, wait a minute, I can talk my way out of this. And I think one of the biggest pieces of that is, even though Henry... uh, Henry. Henry. Yeah, right. Yeah, that is his brother's that's name. His, that's his brother's oh, name. man, that's just... It's been a long day. <laughs> it has. We haven't had Henry for a while. Yeah. But be, be, because Henry chooses him in that moment, it's really the moment after that demonstration that is most important. It's when Henry and Eddie are walking home. Right. And Eddie asks him, why would you pick me? And Henry says, well, I, I told you why. And, and I meant it. And that sweet little moment, I mean, because that's when they were kids. This is prior to heroin. Sure. This is prior to Henry, really. I mean, Henry was always a bully, but the fact that he could for one second actualize and realize something in his brother that was not a piece of him and that, yeah, he was like, I was being honest. And that's so beautiful. And that is the moment he, I think you're right. He becomes a gunslinger, which is just so fucking cool. Yeah. I mean, look, Eddie up until this point, never takes himself seriously. And finally, in the moment that he chooses to grow up and step up and be the hero, yeah, in that moment he becomes the gunslinger, at least to me. Absolutely. So should we, let's let's move to the next major sequence. Sure. They are now in a different version of Earth. Right. This different version of Earth where everybody has died from a killer flu. Mm-hmm. Uh, side note, I because I love to read, apparently, I'm now also <laughs> reading The Stand in conjunction with this. His longest book, by yes, the way. Yes, I have to I just have to nonstop read all the time, <laughs> apparently. 
But what I thought was interesting about that is it's a confirmation of the multiverse. Mm -hmm. There are multiple Earths. These Earths are sometimes similar. They are sometimes not similar. We now have three. We have the Earth that Roland and his his in Gilead. Mm -hmm. We have the earth that Eddie and Susanna came from. Mm -hmm. And now this earth that got wiped out by this plague. Right. I think that's an important world building because up to this point, we're not really sure what this universe is, how this universe works. Now we know for a fact, it is 100% a multiverse Mm -hmm. because up until this point, there was a thought that maybe when they were traveling, Roland was traveling through those doorways in the second book back in time and that we are the great old ones of his world. Right. And that when he pulled Eddie and Susanna, he's just pulling them into the future. And they haven't traveled to a different dimension. They've traveled to a different point in time. Mm-hmm. We now know for a fact their their time does move weird in this universe, but there are multiple Earths. Right. And I thought that's worth at least calling out a little oh, bit. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And I love that baseball is how they figured that out. And there is, I mean, there, there is a rumor that every Stephen King novel does relate back to the dark tower somehow that he has created his own multiverse. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, totally. So yeah, we, that is the cosmology of the world. And, uh, did you, before we move on to that, did you think that the first part of this was a little disjointed? Because I thought it was a little disjointed. Like I was like, why didn't we have the end of, why was the beginning of wizard and glass? Not just the end of the wastelands. That's a really good point. So the question at hand would be, would Wastelands be better if that last scene, that the first scene of Wizard of Glass is in that book? Yeah, and I... And it ends with them, like, at the thinny starting the story. Right, and I wonder, j- just because that's that's been the pattern of each of the books, so I don't know, it could have been a publishing thing, it could have been I, he didn't have enough done on time, it could have been intentional, I don't know, I'm not Stephen King... But I, but to me, it just kind of felt like, oh, well, this is a continuation of one story, and now we're in Wizard and Glass. You know? I don't know. that I felt like... I think that's a fair point. The one thing that I would say that at least I felt that way the first time around. Okay. I felt the first time around that here we are in Topeka. I'm completely invested in the story of Roland, Eddie, Jake, Susanna, and Oi. And then suddenly, er, boom, I'm now back in the past. I'm like... Wait, what the fuck happened? Sure. And I'm like, hold on. To me, what felt disjointed was us just ripping out of the story that we were in and then entering in a completely new one. Sure. Less so that that there was that hard break at the end of Wastelands. I think it's okay in a series if you want to end in a cliffhanger to end in a cliffhanger. Look at book five of Game of Thrones, or pardon me, Song of Ice and Fire with Jon Snow being stabbed to death. Right. Like that's a major cliffhanger where I'm like, oh, what the fuck's going to happen next? I think it's a good way to invest your audience into getting to the next point. I This time around, I didn't feel that disjointed. And maybe it's because I knew what was coming. That's certainly a part of it. I felt that in or, the, the main journey that they needed to do in Wastelands was to get to the train. Sure. That was it. Get to the train and escape Lud. Mm-hmm. The main crux of this now is, hey, now that we have escaped the peril of the train and now we are here, it is finally time for Roland's new quartet to learn who he is. Sure. He is finally allowed to trust again. Right. And that took up, like, they had to live up to this point. Mm -hmm. He had to be 
sure beyond any other, you know, reasonable doubt had to be completely squashed that these people were trustworthy enough that he could tell him yeah. he could he could admit to them that what motivates him is that his heart is fucking broken. Well, and then Eddie becomes a gunslinger. So when that happens, I think you know, Roland under Roland trusts Jake inherently because he killed him once. Roland trusts Susanna. And at this point, I think the last person he's waiting on, he trusts Oi from the end of the last book. And I think the last person he's really waiting on is Eddie. And I think the Thinny is an interesting world building device. Oh, it makes yeah. me sick to my stomach to read it. Like he's just, he, he describes it so well. Yes. So, so if I, if I'm to understand it correctly, I see it as like a, a tear in time. Basically. Did you ever play Bioshock infinite? Yes. The one many years ago. Well, but no, but this is the one. Yeah. But it's the one where like there are tears. You're, you're with a young girl and there are tears. And no, the I don't think I played that. Okay. So it's a, that's for, well, for anybody out there who has played this game, that's what it reminds me of. It literally reminds me of like a, an electric tear in the universe. And it, it warbles and it makes that like really sickening high pitched sound. And when you get near it, 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 it's dangerous. It hypnotizes you. Yeah. And it, it makes you want to jump in. Yeah. I mean, we see Elaine actively walk about to walk off a fucking cliff and kill himself. It is one of the, the aspects of the, a new physical manifestation of the tower because the beams are weakening. The tower is weakening. Now the thinnies come, which are these spaces in between these worlds and dimensions get thin and they are hypnotic. They are powerful and they're fucking dangerous. What, uh, what really sticks out to you in the narrative of young Roland? I, the one scene I know that I really want to talk about in detail is the scene that happens in the tavern between oh. the coffin hunters and the young gunslingers. Because oh, yeah. I, I think that, to me, in the first half of this book, is the most fun scene of all of the fun scenes. Yeah, it's one of the most badass things that happens, too. Other than that scene, do you have any other standout moments you want to kick us off with? You know, I do, and it's a shame, because it's not necessarily one of Roland's brighter moments. Oh, okay. It's actually, right. it's actually Roland's first mistake. And I bring that up because we don't see Roland make a lot of mistakes in, in this series. So the one thing it pointed out to me was that early on, King is starting to humanize Roland. And in order to do that, we have to start when he's 16 years old. So he's, they get to Hambury, they meet Sheriff Avery, they meet Jonas, and sort of the, the when they're called the big coffin hunters, right? They're basically the, I consider them like mercenaries. Oh, like yeah. they're like, they're here to basically strong arm the mayor, Mayor Thorin into doing things. Yep. Now, I we would, don't know why yet. I would totally agree with you that they're mercenaries. Yeah. They are hired thugs right. with a reputation. They have a brand with a, a tattoo of a coffin on their hand. Yeah, that's, that's cool. So, so th- I'm gonna, I'd like to read this little bit. If, if you'd permit me to do so, please do. Um, and I'll talk about why I think it's his first mistake. So, uh, it's page 298 and 299 of the book for anybody that's following around, which by the way, you can buy these books through Derek and Laurel's store at www.midnightmyth.com. Just wanted to throw that in there. Real I quick. appreciate that. Plug. Yeah, oh, so- while we're doing that. Follow us on Twitter at the midnight myth. Yep. Facebook, Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. By the way, if you like us, become a Patreon. You get bonus content, and uh, we love all of our fans. Done. See, so now we're on page 298, very bottom. Jonas nodded. 
Please, gents, I'm sure. The voice was a reedy quaver. He then wished them long days upon the earth, all three, coming to Roland the last in his round of handshaking. His grip was dry and firm, utterly untouched by the tremor in his voice. And now Roland noticed the queer blue shape tattooed on the back of the man's right hand, in the webbing between thumb and first finger. It looked like a coffin. Long days, pleasant nights, Roland said, with hardly a thought. It was a greeting from his childhood, and it was only later that he would realize it was more apt to be associated with Gilead than with any such rural place as Hemphill. Just a small slip. But he was beginning to believe that their margin for such slips might be a good deal less than his father had thought when he had sent Roland here to get him out of Martin's way. Oh, that's a good quote. And to you, Jonas said. His bright eyes measured Roland with a thoroughness that was close to insolence, still holding his hand. Then he released it and stepped back. So Jonas, uh, that one tiny little thing, we start to learn something about both of these characters that they both associate with Gilead somehow. Oh, it's good stuff. It really is. It's good stuff. I think there's a lot to unpack there because we have our three young gunslingers being sent to, you know, Magus on essentially a get out of danger mission. Yeah, this is their first one. Like, here's your first mission. It's going to be really easy. By the way, Martin is a sociopath who's going to try to topple Gilead. We don't want you by him because we're afraid he'll kill you. Right. So go there and count the horses and get back. Right. And when you're back, hopefully we'll have dealt with the bigger danger. It'll be done. Right. Real easy, real simple. And they get there and there's more to the story. There are these coffin hunters and Roland fucks up. He says a Gilead, um, you know, greeting Mm -hmm. to someone who knows a Gilead greeting, who knows that there might be more to their story and the game of castles is afoot. And it's so funny because Roland is so quick to realize that he makes the mistake. Like he realizes, he says it very honestly because he's young and he's trying to be polite. And that's what he would say. Right. But he immediately realizes, fuck, uh, it's, it's small, but I can't afford to continue to do that. And unfortunately, even halfway through this book, he'll do it a couple more times. Yep. You know, and, and, and the thing I think is very interesting is that this is the first mistake that Roland makes where someone else is not involved, where someone else doesn't directly get affected. So mm. I think there's something interesting to that, too, in that the small mistakes that Roland makes are, are sort of inconsequential, sort of. But when he really fucks up, somebody either gets hurt or loses their life. Yep. And so there is a deeper game happening here in this town. One that Roland isn't sure he understands at first. At first, it's the over-the-top niceness. Oh, yeah. Everybody is kissing their asses. Like Southern hospitality? More than they should be kissed. And he he can't keep help but wondering... I think these people are lying and being fake. They aren't genuinely being this nice to me. Yeah, he sniffs that out right away. And so does both Cuthbert and Elaine. Yeah. They realize that, like, 
something's weird here. Like we shouldn't be treated this way. Like, yeah, we expected courtesy. Yeah. We expected hospitality, but we didn't expect everyone to kiss our asses. We're just counting horses. Yeah. We're here and under a cover story that they're not gunslingers, that they got too drunk and they caused too much of a rowdiness. So they're sent there as penance. It's a community service. It's like glorified community service. Absolutely. Go there, (laughs) count how many things they have, be sober. And if you do that right, you can come back and we'll forget about what a drunken asshole you were. Pretty easy, right? Absolutely. But there's more to this story. Yeah, certainly. Something else is happening there. One of my favorite moments in that vein too was when Roland and Susan are at the drop and he's looking at her and he goes, there are too many, or there's something wrong with the horses. What is it? Oh, sure. And she's just like, you're right. There's something wrong. Too many, too few. And he goes, she goes, too many. And they both realize that there are too many horses here. Yeah. And Roland's like, you know, having too many horses and lying about horses on its own isn't that bad. But when you add that up with the over the top niceness and the amount of horses and these mysterious coffin hunters who are these mercenaries that don't really belong here at all, what's really happening? We come to learn that the very least, the good man, John Farsons, this is the first time we really get introduced to this force, I should say, mm-hmm. not really a character, is in the middle of a civil war in Gilead, and he wants Gilead to be a democracy. He wants to upend the line of Arthur Eld and end the rule of kings and gunslingers, and in so he is doing brutal, brutal military tactics where he is essentially just killing everyone and anyone unless they join his cause. Right, in, in the name of democracy. And there is an oil patch here in Magus. There's several. And these these oil patches, these refineries, are from the great old ones. They have words like Sitco and Exxon on them. Sunoco, Amoco. Right? So these are old oil refineries that have gone into disrepair. But they still pump. They still pump. They just pump sludge. That's the other thing about, like, this town, like they just pump and run and no one, no one knows how to stop them. No, they can't use the oil. You know, Roland asks a question to, I believe it was the sheriff actually. Like why? I mean, everything's run on electric. Why don't you, why don't you run everything on oil? You've, you've got an endless supply of it. Oh, well, it's, it's not refined. It's not cleaned. We don't know how the machines work. We just fucking, we just let it fuck off. <laughs> we just let it pump sludge. Yep. There are you know? these automated machines, remnants of the great old ones, and they have no idea how to refine it. And it goes to like, there is a point there about civilization, I think being made the knowledge that we have, that we currently have us right now, a modern Americans, how do we pass that on to the next generation? And it's a very fucking important question. And it's one that we have done largely really well in particular in Western civilization through our education systems. When and if those disappear, we're not born with the knowledge of how to refine oil. Mm -hmm. If you don't know how to do it Mm -hmm. and there's no one there tinkering with it, it becomes just an automated pile of black crap. Yeah, sure. However, there is one person who's figured it out, presumably, and that's the good man. And this entire, we find at the very end of the first half that this entire 
plot is to get this oil because the good man has machines of war. Presumably, we can assume tanks. Sure. Things like that he's got, but Maybe he doesn't. planes. Planes. He doesn't have the fuel, though. He needs to refine the oil so that right. he can use it. And this is all about selling this to the good man. In other words, these are not good affiliation men. They are traitors to mm. Gilead. And here come these three young Gilead boys. Teenagers. Teenagers that they're supposed to be nice to that could give the whole fucking game up. That's and crazy. The stakes are high. If this crude gets back to the good man, the gunslingers are done. Sure. They will not be able to win sure. if the good man knows how to use these weapons of war and knows how to use the oil. And presumably he does. Absolutely. I mean, we don't know that, but presumably he does. Presumably he does. At least what Roland says is that he either thinks he can or he can. Either way, it's dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Either way, it's really, really bad. Absolutely. If you're in the middle of a civil war and your enemy, when the best weapon you have is a revolver and your enemy's about to equip tanks. Yeah, right. You are fucked. Right. Like, proper fucked. Sure. You know? Sure. So, in that, that's the stakes that we're seeing play out. That this sleepy little town on the edge of the world hangs the entire balance of civilization. Mm -hmm. Who is going to win the civil war will be decided in Magus <laughs> and be decided by Jonas and Roland's game of castles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I think that's I really cool. Yeah, sure. Um, Absolutely. Other great things. So I want to call, can I, can I pivot to another point? Yeah. When we discuss Ka and we discuss it as a force, it really made me think of the romance side of this story, the Roland and Susan side and how that they are just completely drawn to each other. It really felt a little reminiscent and in the spirit of Helen of Troy and Paris mm -hmm. of Troy. And in that, if you're not familiar listeners with that narrative, how it goes is Paris was a lost prince of Troy who was raised by commoners and had to judge different goddesses. He had to judge Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite on who is the most beautiful. And Aphrodite said, hey, if you vote for me, I will give you the most beautiful woman, woman in the world as your wife. And he's like, cool, Aphrodite's the most beautiful goddess. And what happens then? She sends, Aphrodite sends her son Eros, or Cupid, to Helen of Troy, plucks her with an arrow. Helen of Troy falls madly in love with Paris. And Paris and Helen and Troy, they skip out to Troy and the Trojan War happens. Really, really brief overview of that because mm -hmm. this is not a Helen of Troy podcast. The reason I bring that up is that some of the parallels there, Susan is essentially struck by Cupid's arrow in this. She is being pulled along by the force of Ka. She doesn't want to give in to her feelings for Roland at all, but she can't. She can't say no to it. Even though she refuses to meet him, even though she refuses to see him, they happen to be at the same spot at the same time. Well, and we should talk about the reason why she can't see him. You know, essentially, she is a gift to the mayor of this town, and, and, and she's to have his child at some point in time. I believe it's after the reaping festival. Right. That she's supposed basically just supposed to give herself up to this old man and let him fuck her and, and, and impregnate her. And that's it. The narrative goes like this. The mayor of the mm. town, who is essentially a lord, right? He's the lord of magus. He doesn't have any kids. So he's like, hey, here is this beautiful young girl 
whose father just tragically died. What was his job? Maintaining horses. Right. And horses are what they're going to use to pull this oil away. And he was loyal to the affiliation. So here is this essentially young woman without a man to protect her. And he doesn't have a child. And he's just like, hey, you come in, you know, we have sex. You get the baby until they're, you know, around the age where I want them. Then I get the baby. And uh, that's the deal. I'll give you three horses for this. You can be my lover for three horses. And and let's let's also address the fact that she's 16 and he's like fucking 70. Oh, it's gross. Okay, it's and it's wrong. I mean, it's 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 she's and then she's seen about town basically as a whore. Out out of the necessity of her to be able to survive, she has no choice. Like what she's gonna say no, she has no parents. Her aunt completely sells her. I mean, her aunt Coral is the reason why. No, Coral is is Thorin's wife. Yes. Cordelia. Cordelia. My apologies. No worries. I mean, I mean, Cordelia is the reason why this happens. She's like, look, you're going to get everything back when your father passed away, which, which we learned that that happens. We're going to get his land back. We're going to get his horses back. You're going to get your name back. The only thing that you have to do is basically give yourself up to this fucking old man and have his kid. It's disgusting. It's gross. It makes me angry. And Susan (laughs) is after she meets Roland, she's comfortable with saying what it is. She's prostituting herself. Absolutely. She, she gets what it is. She's just like, this is what it is. She doesn't want to do it. Her aunt pressured her day in and day night. You're absolutely right. I find one of the most tragic elements, and I imagine Helen of Troy had no friends, mm. had no one really to stick by her. Interesting. And then finally she gets to meet Paris, and Paris is the one person that can actually be her friend and her lover and see her as her as herself. Helen of Troy, as a young age, was married to the uh, Spartan king Menelaus. Now, it's important to realize that the story of, of Helen of Troy is very ancient, and women don't really have a right or a say. But that's very reminiscent, because, you know, Susan doesn't have much rights or say in this as well I mean, either. women in this world don't. I mean, it's very clear. Men rule this entire town, and women are seen as, as housewives and servants and, and, and the help I mean, they're, they, they practically, I bet they can't vote. If they could vote in this, you know, if they did in this world, they probably don't have that right here. Absolutely. In comes Paris, this beautiful prince from a foreign place who is really charming and nice and sees her as she actually is. In comes Roland, a prince of the line of Arthur Dell, coming from a faraway place who sees her as she finally is. And, you know, there are a few moments that we see in Susan's life that are really uncomfortable. So the first one is when she's with Rhea of the Coos. Yeah. I mean, it's basically the beginning of this tale. Rhea of the Coos is a witch in the most classical sense. Mm -hmm. She has a mutated cat. She can summon fire with spells. She's entrusted with the magical pink glass. She creates potions. She creates potions. (laughs) She has a cauldron, literally. (laughs) And she is tasked with doing an inspection of Susan's body to certify her as pure. Now, it's really uncomfortable and weird. It's wildly uncomfortable. However, there are a few extra layers it's not uncommon in many cultures for women's bodies to have to be inspected before they're married. 
It's a terrible thing. It's gross. But that's something that happens. But if that happens to all women, there is a sense of solidarity. And I'm not saying it's okay to inspect that, right? But at the very least, you're going through something that someone else has also gone through, mm -hmm. and they can say, hey, I've been there, and I know it sucks. Mm -hmm. Okay. Susan has to do this completely on her own. Nobody oh, sure. else has to go through it. Rhea, instead of wanting to, at the very least, be sympathetic and be like, I know this sucks. I don't want to prod your body any more than you want me to prod it, delights in the uncomfortability. Oh, yeah. And, and hypnotizes her to cut off her own hair. I mean, Susan is the complete opposite of Rhea. There is some jealousy. There is some, I want to ruin this child's life because she's pure and she's beautiful and whatever. Also, the other thing to realize is that like people didn't respect her father in this town. They sort of did, but, but I mean, he was, He's the guy that raised horses. He was a commoner. He was a commoner, middle, but but everyone knew him as a fair man right. and a kind man. But they weren't they 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 weren't especially proud of him in any way. I mean, she, I mean, Susan holds a very very dear place in her heart for him. I mean, it's really it's really sweet. And in fact, it 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 sort of reminds me of the relationship between my wife and her father before he passed. Just that closeness, that 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 ability to where her father was that voice of reason and being able to calm her down and understanding the fire that Susan has, the passion that Susan has, and being able to say, you know what, that's a wonderful trait, but let, let's shape it so that it works for you in the world. I really like her. I really like that story between the two of them. That's and great. I think that it, it's, it, I mean, it's a shame that, Susan has to lose a man and gain another man in order to be seen. Well, this is, this is part of my point here, you know, right? So Rhea does not at all stand with Susan in this ritual, no. wants to humiliate her and wants to humiliate her further. Then there's another episode. So I get that her relationship with aunt cord is contentious and it is rot and unfunctional and sure. poisonous. Sure. But Susan gets sexually assaulted by Mare Thorin in this, where Mare Thorin comes up behind her and dry humps her, mm -hmm. and it's fucking awful. He grabs all of her body and with, with, without consent at all. She runs home to tell Aunt Cord this, and Aunt Cord's just like, oh, that's all it was? That's it? Yeah. That's not a big deal. Well, I mean, we sold you to him. Yeah, so you're his. You'll eventually have to sleep with him anyway, so this is no big deal, right? And realize the reason why why she's not sleeping with him yet. I mean, she wants to get this over with. Right. She's like, look, I, like this is fucking awful. I want to move on from this. But Rhea says, well, no, not until after the reaping moon, which is which it happens in the fall. So currently we're in like the summer. end of the spring, beginning of the summer when the book starts. And then actually, I think we're even, for, I think we're in the spring mm -hmm. because there's like three, there's like three months go by where there, where, where the bolt, where, you know, the gunslingers are there as the affiliation, you know, they're counting things. They haven't gotten to the horses yet. So I think we're, and now we're in deep summer. Right. So we have to get to fall almost winter before she can. So it's like six months. So she's going to hang around and be like this contracted person who's just like, Oh yeah, eventually I'm going to get impregnated by, I don't I'm sorry. It really, it, this is the one part of the story that like drives me nuts. Well, it's, it is, it's a, awful. It is a very, very fucked up thing. Yeah. And I, I thought it was just so tragic that 
there are two potential women characters in Rhea of the Coos and Aunt Cord who those relationships can still be contentious and not functional that like, God damn, I just wish one of them patted her on the back and been like, I know what you're going through sucks. Well, and then, you know, and then there's also Coral Thorne, they, who's they, the mayor's wife, who, who like throughout all of this has to sit back and watch this happen and watch this woman who's, who's, you know, half her age. I mean, probably even more than, well, much more than, much younger. Well, the mayor sits his new young girl at the banquet next to him uh, and the wife. The only woman that is in the first half that is generous or kind at all to Susan is the seamstress after she gets assaulted, right. who at least says, it's a cold world. I'm so sorry. Like, you know, like this is a cruel world. Like, at least I see you as a person and I know what happened and that must have been painful for you. And the only person, the only character in the book so far that really other than Roland supports Susan is Shimi. Yeah. Can I give you, I'll give you a quote. This is a, this is a thought of Susan's. And um, this is when Shimi comes and gives her flowers with a note. And uh, her aunt is really pissed off. Like, don't you fucking fuck around. We have our ticket to get our horses and our land back. All you have to do is be a prostitute. Like, don't mess this up. Well, yeah. And right before you read this, we should, we should also say that, that Roland Cuthbert and Elaine have aliases. So Roland is known as Will Dearborn. Mm-hmm. And so her aunt Cordelia has told her, you have to stay awake specifically from him. I see the connection the two of you have. Enough is enough. Like we're not doing that. And this is, this is a thought that Susan has that I thought was interesting. Then Aunt Cord had smiled a real smile. What hurts Susan the most confused, confused her the most was that her aunt was no cradle story org, no witch like Rhea of the coos. There's no monster here. Only a maiden lady with a few social pretensions, a love of gold of silver and the fear of being turned out penniless into the world. Yeah. And I'm like, man, Susan is so generous in the way that she views her aunt, her aunt, even then, in that like she's not an actual monster. She's just afraid and scared and lonely. And she wants gold and silver and doesn't want to be poor and wants to be known in the town as someone that's important. And that's what drives her aunt to pressure her niece to prostitute herself. Well, and I would even say it's worse, actually. Like, she doesn't pressure her. She literally sells her. Like, like, like Aunt Cordelia is literally the reason why this happens. And so to me, it's like, I, I, I respect Susan for being able to see that point of view. The one thing I really respect Susan is, is she's strong as hell. Oh, yeah. I mean, she completely accepts that this is going to happen. Because she realizes that she can gain prosperity for her family's name. But she mentions all the time, if her father knew about this, how humiliated, how angry, he would not suffer this for a second. And that worse than that, if she had made a promise to do this, her father would want her to honor the promise because breaking a promise is wrong. But then it gets so much more complicated when we get the idea that her father was actually murdered mm. by these very same people that she thinks are his friends and her friends. Well, and theoretically, we don't really know that yet, but she sus- where we're at, we she- suspect. And she's been told that that's happened. Like she's sort of figured it out. Because the father is loyal to the affiliation mm-hmm. and they need horses to move, horses and oxen, 
to move the crude oil to the good man and so that they can make money from the good man that because he's loyal to the affiliation, they can't have him around seeing these horses and oxen. So they have to bump him off. And I'm pretty sure it was Fran Langell was, was a part of it or Langle. Yeah. The blacksmith, part of it, the blacksmith, but also the coffin hunters were sort of a part of it. And we're not sure at this point. Yeah. But, right. It's, it's cloudy, but it complicates her morality that, Hey, even if I made a horrible promise, I made a promise and I should keep it when it's like, I made the promise to the people that might have murdered my father. Yeah, that's really manipulative and fucked up. <laughs> it complicates it. And I also find it's a little odd that Susan goes through the sexual degradation of the inspection with Rhea, and then she goes through the sexual assault at the hands of Mayor Thorin. And after both of those incidences are incidences in which she has major connection moments with Roland. The first is she just meets Roland and she kisses him on their walk into the town at the end of the, and, and at night. The second one, after she is sexually assaulted, she has sex with Roland. Yeah. To me, where I find that a little problematic is it just doesn't seem realistic that someone would be sexually assaulted and then want to go lose their virginity with their teenage lover. Well, right. And I think this is, I think this is one of King's traps in being a, a man writing from a, from a woman's perspective and especially somebody like King, because he's, he's sort of proven before that, you know, being woke about these things is not really in his wheelhouse. It's just not the thing that he's very good at. I mean, we've talked about the problems with, Susanna and 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 I also see although I will say Susan he did figure a couple of things out she's very compelling she's definitely more three-dimensional than Susanna has been at all at this point um you know she's like I said before she's incredibly strong she's compelling and she's really stuck between a rock and a hard place I mean she's a 16 year old in a society where women aren't taken seriously like she, there's nothing she can do Short of like murdering people and then getting the hell out of that town. I mean, and, and I, you know, to play devil's advocate and I don't Please love, do. I don't love to do this, but I will say in, in, in the theme of the book, I mean, I see where you're, I completely agree that it doesn't make sense that she would just, she would meet Roland by the, this fucking pond and it would I mean, in the moonlight. And it's a beautiful scene. I mean, the first time they make love is, is fucking gorgeous. It's unreal. Like I read it and I'm like, damn, they are, con this is, yeah, this is what it felt like. It's a true romantic yeah, scene. The first oh, yeah. Time, yeah. The first time I made love to my wife. Yeah. And the very first time we were together. Yeah. It felt that way. Yep. It was fucking magic. Right. You know what I mean? Like it is, that's what we live for. Like, especially two actors. Like, of course, like it's like, like it, it's exactly what it's supposed to be. Right. But, but I, but it is unrealistic. Like she did. She just got sexually assaulted. Like I don't see her running to a man and be like, oh yeah, please let's have sex now. But the only person at this point other than Shimi who gives Susan any sort of comfort, any sort of trust, is Roland. So even though I do believe it's unrealistic, the one person she's going to find comfort in, I mean, you also talked earlier, in, even in this episode, that the way they fall in love, they cannot help it. It's Ka. They cannot control their feelings for one another. They're both compelled, one, Roland, by his gunslinger oath and the job that he has to do, and Susan by the promise that she made to the mayor, 
and to respect that promise. They are compelled by these promises, these oaths, to not be a romantic couple, and Ka doesn't let him not be right. it. And I'll tell you, and, and all that aside, it, it, still, it still feels a little uncomfortable to me in the world that we live in right now. It's still like, that's, that's unrealistic. Yeah, does, does she have to get like near raped? You right. know, like, right. does it have to be that bad? Right. I mean, I mean, I, like, like Thorne could have just made some shitty pass and said some weird thing and like did that thing that old weird white guys do where they like drool over young women. And it's fucking gross. We could have had that. Instead, we have her. We have him just physically assault her in in it. By the way, with a room of people next door. Oh yeah. And he says, "I burn for you." It's fucking gross. It's really He's gross. It's, I hate him. It's a, <laughs> it's a really odd decision. Ugh. But I also agree that, I mean, I think Susan is the most interesting character that he's written, not named Roland at this point. You know, Susan, Susan is really compelling. No, to she me. is. She is. I mean, I would put her third just because you're an Eddie. Man. I'm an Eddie. I guy. love Eddie yeah, too. Yeah. But, I, but not, I hear what you're saying. And I, don't, yeah. I, 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 I agree that she is wildly compelling. Wildly. And the fact that they're like both her and Roland share the same conflict. They have a duty and obligation Definitely. that, and the romance is getting in the way the romance. They both know will cloud their judgment. They both will know that like, Hey, and they both are like, if it's Ka, what can we really do? Yeah. They do. They do. They do both give in to Ka. Absolutely. And so I really appreciate how that they are mirrors of each other. They're both confident. They're both intelligent. They're both constantly underestimated mm -hmm. and they're both wiser beyond their years by me at 16. Oh. And that scenario uh -huh. would have fucked everything uh -huh. up. So should we move finally to the, the big scene? Let's move to the big scene in the first half of the book. I so think, yeah, I mean, we get, we get, so we're at the big K. I, I think that's what the name of the, of the saloon is basically where they're staying. It's the tavern. Yeah. It, it is as Western of a tavern oh. as you can imagine. Oh yeah. You know, like sawdust, there's a piano player, prostitutes, yeah. vomit fights. You basically get whiskey or beer. That's it. That those are two choices. Whiskey, beer, and I mean, a my, lady. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about the big coffin hunters. They mm -hmm. are the three personal security to the mayor. They are led by Jonas. Then there's Roy DePape and, oh my God, I'm blanking on the third guy's name. Reynolds is Reynolds. his last name. So Jonas orders Reynolds and DePape to go and cover up all of the shit they're doing at the Cisco, Sitco oil field. And they're pissed off drinking. Meanwhile, Jonas is at the party with all of the affiliation boys, all the mm -hmm. pomp and circumstance. And they're sitting there and they're drinking and they're getting fucking hammered. And they're just angry because they worked all day. And we meet for the first time one of the truly greatest characters of the Dark Tower in Shimi. Mm. Now, Shimi has a cognitive disability. Mm -hmm. um, we're not exactly sure what it is. Mm -hmm. um, they use some pretty harsh words to describe him in the book. Yeah. And, um, but we get the sense he's a little slower than average and his job is to clean up the bar and he trips and he spills some dirty mop water onto one of the coffin hunters. I actually think it's, it's this, it's this drink where like, you oh, that's can, right. Where it's like anybody drink. who has like shitty all sorts, ends, well, all yeah. the leftovers get it, into a big thing yeah, and you can pay like a nickel or something like that. And you can and get you a drink, drink of it. the whatever the fuck is in it. Yeah. And he spills that shit all over. So it's like mucus and 
It's yep. nasty. And it's gross. Yeah. And they're like, you know, the coffin hunters are like, okay, something good's happening. I'm going to have, I'm going to be able to kill this little boy. And they just want to kill him. I guess, I don't know if he's actually a boy. I vision him as a young man. No, but I, I don't know if they say his age. I, I see him being around the same age as Susan and, 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 and Roland. So probably right. 15 or 16. Right. But they don't exactly say his age. Mm-hmm. And in this, there is both Cuthbert and Elaine are in the, the tavern as well. And Cuthbert has his slingshot. And he's just like, I will not allow this. And he's also got a mouth. Yes. <laughs> he's the mouthy one. He's Eddie. And he's just like, nope. And he fucking uses his slingshot and breaks the finger of one of the coffin hunters. Because right, he's got steel balls for them. Like he's, and he's deadly accurate. And he does. He, I think he, he, he practically rips off the tip of the, the finger. tip of the finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we have a standard Mexican standoff, right? Mm-hmm. We have this scene in which... The, this 15-year-old has a slingshot pointing at the head of the coffin hunter. The other coffin hunter has a gun at his back. Then Elaine has a knife at the throat. Then Jonas comes in and puts a gun to the head of Elaine. In one of the most amazing moments of the entire series, Jonas puts a gun to the back of Elaine's head and says, son, now drop the knife. Well, yeah, and that's after coming from the party. But like he, re- he realizes, and this is when we start to see that maybe... Jonas may have been a gunslinger at one point in time. He sneaks into the bar and puts the gun at the back of Elaine. And And then Elaine says, no, right. Elaine's not afraid to die. No, he's like, no, I'm not going to give this up. No way. You can kill me. And throughout all this, Roland leaves the party is walking back to the back to the bar, back to the lodge, but he's got to sneak his way through because he sees what's happening. And then he comes in and puts the gun to the back of the head of Jonas. Oh, it's a knife. Oh, it's a knife, right? Because they don't have Correct. the Correct, they don't right there. And yep, Roland yep, yep. comes in and says, no more talking. Talking's done. You're going to lower this now or you're dead. And Jonas is just like, fuck, how did I lose this? Mm-hmm. To a how, 16-year-old. How did I get outmaneuvered? And now the jig is up. The coffin hunters aren't who they seem. The affiliation boys aren't who they seem. Right. And now we get this thing where the, where the coffin hunters start to realize, I don't think these kids are where they say they're from. And the coffin hunters also, Jonas is just like, my pride demands that I have to kill them. Right. But I'm going to wait and be patient mm-hmm. and smart. And we see how dangerous well, this game they're playing yeah. really is. And Roland does the same thing. We're going to wait. And we're going to let things happen. And then we, we get into the book where, where DePape, I love that you and I say the name. You call him DePape. Yeah, I absolutely. call him DePape. <laughs> I love that we say the name differently. Yeah. But I, when he, when he leaves and he, I forget what town he goes to. Which oh, is, that's a great It's scene. something like 500 miles away from, from Hambry, from where they're at. And he finds this old weed eater, this old drug addict who's like in his eighties. And somehow convinces him to tell him this story. Uh, uh, You know, he had heard that there were these three young gunslingers who had rolled through their town on their way to Hambry and were, you know, and and were from the line of Stephen to shame. And DePape starts to realize, oh, wait a second, I've heard that name. That's a gunslinger. That's a gunslinger. 
these kids are not who they say they are. And then it becomes now this game of cat and mouse where as soon as the, and we're not there yet, but my assumption is that the Pape will leave and, and now tell Jonas and now it's, it's bloodshed. It's, it's a hunt. Yep. It's a legit hunt. Now there are the mercenaries versus the young knights right. and they call it castles. I get the sense that castles is the Gilead version of chess that they are playing yeah. chess with each other yeah. is what I understand. It's like they're waiting, they're understanding each other's moves. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be too uh, aggressive yet too passive. Sure. So they're just watching each other, learning about each other. Did you ever play the game Gwent? Have you ever played uh, The Witcher? Yes. So it reminds me of Gwent too, just like a strategic card game. Yep. Almost. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Totally agree. It's like chess, Gwent, sure. whatever you want to call it, they're in this game of castles yeah, right yeah, now. Definitely. And we have these three young teenagers, one gunslinger, two gunslinger apprentices, and three ruthless older mercenaries. There is a theme that's happening in this book of generational change, mm. that there is an older generation and a younger generation, and they are at odds. There is a lot of of just, especially with Susan, there's a lot of hatred from her aunt and from Rhea because of her age. Her age is the very reason that um, the mayor is attracted to her and wants to take her as her quote unquote Jilly. And then we have the young gunslingers due to their age and experience sent to a safe place out of the way that are instantly (coughs) underestimated because of their age. And then you have Jonas who's just like, I will not suffer a young kid getting the better of me. My pride demands that I kill them because children do not get the better of grown man Jonas. Right. And there is this conflict of generations that are sort of at each other's throat that I think is happening here. And it's sort of a microcosm of a world about to move on mm-hmm. when the generation can no longer pass down what they have to the younger and is rather trying to dominate, destroy, or kill the younger generation. Hmm. And the younger generation's only response back is to kill them. Very interesting. It kind of reminds me of uh, of some place we know and some time we might know of. There is many lessons to be learned Definitely. that we can take as contemporary Americans. Many, many lessons that we can learn. I got to say, I'm excited to get to the second half of this book. Um, the one thing I will say is I, I do think that this is the most, it, it, it feels like the most fantasy. It feels like a very clear cut story. There's a beginning, a middle and an end. There's not much we have to figure out. And it shows me that King really truly loves Roland. It's the first time where I, I feel like King appreciates his, his main character because now he's sharing things with us about him that, that are really tough and really heavy, but like you get the, there's like classic Roland things, right? Like he, like he's already a badass. They talk about his burning blue eyes and, and how, how he, he really doesn't have a sense of humor, even though in this with Susan, like he laughs a lot more than ever. It's so good to see a human Roland, but I'm excited to see what happens. Yeah. Same here. And I, I think you are right when you call it the most fantasy, this book does a little more, does a lot, I should say, towards word, world building. Mm-hmm. In the previous books, there's hints about the world, but the world itself is a mystery. Yeah. We're trying to figure out what this world is, what's happened here. Mm-hmm. The characters don't really know. We don't know. 
and the narrator, the main character, the main point of view, Roland, holds all of his emotions and thoughts in. So he's our gateway to understanding it, and he's hesitant to tell the other characters, and hence he's hesitant to tell us, the audience. No wonder why. Because when you fucking find out what happens... Even up to this point, it's like, oh, man, this doesn't feel... I have a bad feeling about this. Yes. <laughs> and then in this one, the world is very fleshed out. Yeah. There are magic wizards, oh, it's magic witches yeah. with magic items, as well as there are tanks. There is a there is a, a saloon in which there can be gunfights, and there's also medieval lords and knights. Right. There's someone fighting for democracy, but he also is the bad guy, so we know that democracy is not the fix for Gilead mm. and the affiliation, the way that democracy worked in our universe right, right. to help like elevate freedom. We know that the John Farson, the quote-unquote good man, we know that he's evil because we know what his war did. Right. It destroyed and accelerated the process of the world moving on. Right. So we know not to trust that the John Farson says he wants democratic change. We know that's bullshit. Right. Right. We know that he's a bad guy because we've seen the end result. And now we get to really dig into this world. We get to see the different sayings, the different nuances. I feel that this book King is painting better than he has in the other mm-hmm. previous ones. Mm-hmm. I feel like I really see everything really clearly. Well, and this is the one book where our world doesn't get like our time doesn't get mentioned at all. You know, like it's really fun to go through the first three books, really book two and three when Eddie and Suzanne and Jake get introduced and you hear about like, Hey Jude and you hear about Sitco and my big Amico thing. You know, you hear references of, of New York city and things that we can connect to. Whereas this, I really feel like I'm sitting at the fire having palaver with Roland and that he is telling me a a story of his time and his when and a formidable experience for him. And I feel like I'm, I'm the student being taught by the teacher in a good way. And great point. And it's written in a way where the love story and the conspiracy that's happening in Magus are so locked together and the tension is building that halfway through the point, you're like, everyone's fucked. Oh, yeah. I oh, know. Yeah. Like, we know Susan dies before this book starts because right. Roland tells us Susan tells us dies. Tells us that she does. We and, don't know how. Right. But we're, we'll we, get there. We're reading this and you're like, there's no way this works. No. There's just no way this works. No. We know it's not going to work. And in a Shakespearean way, it's about the journey. We want to see how they get there. Yeah. And these these two kids... Are are making a lot of mistakes. Like I know they're 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 le- leaning into Ka, but but Ka in the end, it's the one thing. Like we don't we don't know if Ka is positive, negative, or if it, um, to me it just is what it is. There's there's no there's no change in it. Fate is fate. It's the way it goes. And if our story is written before we're born, we have no choice but to be pushed around and pushed along like a cyclone in the way that Susan is in this and that the shame of it, of it is Roland must become obsessed with the tower for Roland to become obsessed with the tower. He can't be happy and in love. Mm. Any final thoughts, my friend? No, man, I'm ready to read the second half and Me talk too. about it. All right. Midnight myth, wheel of cough fans. Let us know what you think. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you want to hear. Tell us if we miss something. Yeah. Tell us if you want a blog. I will happily write a blog if you folks demand it. And uh, long days, pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights.